Take your Bibles with me. We're going to go to the book of Acts, all the way to the last chapter. We are finishing a series today that we've called Shipwrecked. We've been following the Apostle Paul on his journey to Rome. And if you're here today and maybe you say, wow, man, week, week three, final week of the series, I, I missed the series. That's okay. Let me just give you a, a couple of thoughts that are just kind of a, an overview of some things that we've seen shining through the text for the last, the last several weeks. Parenthetically, Paul is on a voyage. He's traveling from Jerusalem to Rome. He's not going the way he wanted to go though it was his desire to go there. He's actually, as a prisoner right now of the Roman Imperial Regiment, he's in shackles. He's been loaded aboard a ship. That one faced some storms. He was put on a bigger ship. That one faced some more storms. They decided they were going to harbor for the winter a little farther than they got, and that mistake cost them dearly. Acts chapter 27 tells us that for 14 days and nights, they were tossed about at sea. They didn't see the sun during the day. They didn't see the stars at night. They had no navigational abilities. They were completely lost at sea. And Luke, who writes this story, communicates to us with incredible detail and accuracy what they faced on that journey. Now, last week, we got towards the end of this horrific voyage. And the Bible says, finally, the sun came out and and they could see the shoreline and they decided they were going to make a break for it. They hoisted the sail. They lightened the load. They tried to run the ship aground, but it got stuck in a sandbar. And then the the waves just began to crash and pound and pound against against the vessel until finally, the Bible says in the last verse of Acts 27, that they all just began to jump overboard. They determined they were going to swim ashore. And so they jumped overboard. Some of them swam. Others held on to pieces of the ship to try to float ashore until finally they could get to land again. Now, here, here's what I want to say about all of that story in case maybe you missed the last few weeks. Paul faced setbacks for sure. He, he faced storms. He faced even a shipwreck. But in the midst of all of that, there was a certainty that he had. And it was this. I am going to Rome. He knew it. He was sure of it. He was not sure of it because of what was happening. He was not sure of it because of of what was being said to him. He was sure of it because God had called him to Rome. And And I can say it this way this morning, that where God guides, he provides. How many of you have found that to be true in your life? That where God guides, he provides. Now, in the natural, we might just say, where there's a will, there's a way. But I'm not talking about determination. I'm not talking about self-help or just having an inward uh, drive. Those that, that God calls, he equips. And truth be told, I could go on and on with little Christian jargons, and and we might be able to sell some clever merchandise that had some of these slogans on there that make us feel good, right? Where God guides, he provides. But the truth is, and let's let's just be honest in church, that sounds like a good idea, right? The truth is, you and I, we've probably all been at places in our life where we were the ones that felt like we were in this 
metaphorical storm. And we didn't know. Is God using this storm to strengthen? In other words, am I supposed to respond to this storm by dropping an anchor and just believing and trusting God and weathering this thing out? Or is this storm the wind of the Holy Spirit trying to push me in a different direction? Am I supposed to stay and stick it out? Or is all of this an indication from God that I'm supposed to move in a different direction? You ever been there before? Where you're just going, you know, I'm struggling and I, I just don't know. I don't know what this means. I'm, I'm trying to read the weather and, and I'm not really sure what these circumstances in my life are communicating to me. How many want the answer? Amen. Man, I guess you've never been there before. My hands are both up. I've been there. Well, if you're looking at Paul and you're reading Acts 27 and Acts 28, let me tell you, the answer is yes. Yes, the storm means it's time to stick it out. It's time to just hold on. It's time to just believe that God is going to cause the clouds to part over your life and the sun is going to shine again and it's all going to be good. But it also means yes. The Holy Spirit is pushing you in a different direction, and this is the Holy Spirit leading you to a place you might not have gone outside of his leading. So it's time to hoist the mainsail, and it's time to let the Spirit lead. I, I wish, honestly, church, I wish I could give you a more clear answer to your specific situation. But maybe I have. Stay with me. See, Paul had some situations in this storm. Well, here's what I know about Paul. He was never short on an opinion. He, he had an opinion about what they should do every step of the journey. As you read through this, he always has advice on what we should do. But what we see is sometimes God gives him favor, even though he's in shackles, even though he's a prisoner. God gives him favor and influence, and they do what Paul says they should do. And because they do that, they get to the place where God wants them to be. But there's also several times in this story where either Paul is outvoted or he's ignored or nobody has any say in what's going on. And yet God still uses the circumstances, sometimes in spite of Paul's advice and in spite of his decisions. God uses the circumstances to get them to the place where we're about to read about in Acts 28. Here's what I'm saying today. God is not trying to trick you out of his will. Back when we first set all of this up for Vacation Bible School and we had our family service, some of you might remember the illustration that we used that morning. I said, God is not trying to bean-boozle you. And if you were here or if you've ever played that game, you know what I'm talking about. God's not trying to tell you, here's my will and here's my plan, and then trick you and give you something you didn't think you were going to get. Here's Paul, in the midst of all of these circumstances, he's going through all of these struggles. He's, he's unsure of how things are going to play out. But the one thing that Paul is absolutely certain about is what he's called to do. He knows, I am going to Rome. I might not get there the way I wanted to get there, but I'm called to preach the gospel there. Sometimes you have to ride the storm out. Sometimes... You have to let the spirit lead you in a direction that you would have never intended to go on your own. Here's what the Bible says to us in Exodus chapter 14. I, I want you to see these two verses 
because this is where the children of Israel are, are coming out of bondage in Egypt. And, and God is encouraging them through Moses. And listen to this verse. It says in Exodus 14, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Everybody just say, be still. Be still. Next verse. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Everybody say, move on. Move on. So which is it, God? Be still or move on. You ever lived between those two verses? I don't know. See, here's what happens. Sometimes we confuse God's be still for stand still. God didn't say stand still. God, God never said waiting on the Lord meant doing nothing. Be still and know that I'm God. Be still. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. But don't stand still. And here's what you need to understand, that Paul, he always had opinions about what should be done. He always shared what those opinions were. Sometimes people listened, sometimes they didn't. But sometimes because of Paul's voice and sometimes in spite of his choice, God got him to Rome. And what I want to say to you today to unlock any fear that might be in your heart is this. You're not going to get to heaven one day and have lived a whole life to just say, God, I just want to honor you. I want to serve you. I want you to be glorified in my life. And then one day you get there and, and you, God's handing out all the crowns and all the rewards. And he looks at you and says, you should have went left. What'd you go right for? You should have chose B. I can't believe you chose A. God is not going to do that to you. He's not going to bean boozle you. You can know that if I'm committed to the will of God, he'll reveal the way. I don't have to know the way. I, I know the will. And if you're, if you're committed to that, if you're committed to say, God, I, I just, I, I want to serve you. I want to honor you with all of my life. And I don't know all the details of the future, but I know what you want me to do right now. I know what I can do today to honor you and to glorify you. If you'll do that, if you'll commit to that, God will reveal his will in your life. You need to understand this today. God is, God is bigger. He's bigger than your good choices and your bad ones. Doesn't mean those choices don't matter. It means that God always has a way to work out his will for your life when your heart is fixed on him. See, the Bible says this about us following the will of the Lord in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. It says, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. The Lord wants to establish your steps today. He wants to, he wants to give you a peace about knowing that, that Though your intentions might be good, you might accidentally run your life off the rails. That's not going to happen. God is bigger than that. He's, he, he's, a, he's a good father. He's for you. If you'll exercise a heart of devotion to him, he will establish your steps. Now, now Luke writes this, and, and he catalogs all these details about this journey. And if you just sit down, and maybe you've never done this before, but if you just sit down and read through the last few chapters of Acts, what you're going to find, what I think we'd all find, is there's this amazing, apparent, overwhelming evidence of the hand of God on the life of the Apostle Paul. I mean, when you look at where this story begins, 
how it takes place and where it ends up, you cannot help but look at the end of the story and say, wow, the providential hand of God was involved in that story. I mean, there's no way to read this without seeing the work of God in the text. And isn't that what you want for your life? I mean, isn't that what we all want? I mean, mind you, we'd rather skip the storms and the shipwrecks, and we don't want all the the troubles that come with it. But I don't know about you, but when I get to the end of my life, when when people flood into the church, if God should tarry, and, and, and they lay my body in the front of the sanctuary, I want people to look at the end of my story and scratch their head in amazement at the providential hand of God. I want people to look at my life and say, there's no way he gets there. There's no way he does that unless God orchestrated and established his steps. Isn't that what you want for your life? That God would so lead us and move us in a way that he would get all the glory for the things that he's done. I want to encourage you here. And I know we haven't even read the text yet, but somebody needs to hear this today. Don't throw away your hope in God. You see, the writer of Hebrews was writing to Christians, and we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, may have been Paul, but he's writing to this church. He's writing to believers that have been persecuted. He's writing to people that have lost loved ones. There's been attacks against the church, and they've suffered. They've suffered along with others. And he writes in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35, these words. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. And I just want to give that word to someone today. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Paul said it another way at another place. He said, he who began a good work in you shall bring it to completion. It is going to happen. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't give up hope. You say, yeah, but you don't know where I'm at. Well, Paul didn't know where he was at, but he knew he was called. You say, yeah, but you don't know what I've been through. You don't know the devastation of my life. Paul just crawled onto the shore after being adrift for 14 days and night. You want to talk about uncertainty about the future. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. And so Acts 27, it ended last week as we read with people crawling, crawling onto the shore, some on planks and on broken pieces of the vessel. Look at verse one with me today of Acts chapter 28. As we go to this text, I want to pray. Father, I believe you're already speaking to us in this service. But I believe there's even more that you want to say, not only corporately to all of us, but God, specifically, there's there's a word that you have for us. God, give us ears to hear today and, and faith to reach out and grab a hold of your word when it comes to us. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Verse one. Are you there? Acts 28. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and they welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. 
Look at verse three. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. Point number one. Are you kidding me, God? Have you ever felt that way? I mean, come, come on. I mean, put yourself in the story. You just, I mean, you're a prisoner. You're in shackles. You haven't really committed a crime. You're just preaching the gospel that God called you to preach. Now, you, you've just barely survived being drowned in the sea. You, you get on shore. The people are kind. You weren't expecting hospitality, but here it is. They, they, they build a fire. It, it's winter. You're cold. You're wet. You're going, wow, these people are, are really nice. You know what? I'll help out. I'll go get some firewood. I'll, I'll, I'll help. I'll be a nice guy. And he goes and he picks up the wood and throws it in the fire. And there's a snake in the wood. Have you ever been there where you just thought, God, this isn't right? I mean, this just doesn't make sense anymore. I mean, now, now, I'm, I'm, now I'm questioning everything. Now I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you're just playing games with me. I can't help but wonder if that's where Paul was at. I want you to look with me in the next verse at what it says. Verse 4 says, when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. In other words, these people understood justice. That's one contribution that that Romans made to civilization. They were adamant about justice. They didn't know much about mercy, but if you did the crime, you're going to do the time. They understood justice. And so they had this, uh, this idea of the goddess of justice that, you know, Paul, all these people are criminals. All 276 that just washed up on the shore are criminals but well, this guy must be a really bad criminal because he somehow managed to survive the shipwreck, but the gods wouldn't let him evade justice. And so now he's been bit by a snake and we're all going to watch him die because this is the right thing. Nobody's running for an anti-venom. <laughs> Nobody's looking for a medicine man. No snake bite kit. It's still hanging on his hand, the Bible says. I mean, no, nobody's even pulling the snake off. They're just, oh, yeah, this is going down now. <laughs> yep. This guy obviously deserves the punishment. Have you ever felt like there was people just standing around you waiting to see what's going to happen? Like, yeah, we're, this is not going to go well for them at all. Have you ever felt like that? Like the, the world is just watching and they're waiting to see how bad it's going to go for you. Let me tell you, and you might want to write this down. This is important. You need to know who you are. And now that might sound simple, but, but understand, you need to know who you are because there's going to be a lot of opinions that want to say otherwise. Yeah. Not only opinions, not only people, but circumstances, stuff that you go through are going to try to communicate to you that you're something other than who God says that you are. And ultimately, his is the opinion that matters. You need to know who you are today. Look, look at what verse five says. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. 
The next verse says, the people expected him to swell up and suddenly fall dead. That was it. Like, we've seen this before. My cousin got bit by a snake once. He died. Right? Like, they've seen these snakes. They know how this goes. When people get bit by this snake, they swell up, they fall over, they die. And now everybody's like, well, this is justice. I mean, this is what he deserves. We're going to see how it goes down. The Bible says Paul just shook the snake off. He just shook it off. Let me, let me make an application today for you and for me, because there's public opinion out there that thinks a lot of things about you. See, the fact is, Paul shook that snake off, and they waited, and they waited, and they watched, and they thought, he, he's going he's gonna to die. But look at verse 6. It says, they expected him to fall dead, but after waiting a long time, and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds. And now they said, he's a god. <laughs> Isn't that public opinion? I mean, one minute, you're guilty. Next, oh, no, you're a god. I mean, one minute, you're a criminal. You deserve punishment. No, wait, no, wait. We, 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 we should follow this guy. We should worship this guy. He's got something we don't have. And Paul could have easily, he could have easily just been prone to, to, to give in to public opinion. In fact, the very opposite of this happened to him already in his life. Back in Acts 14, he goes into Lystra. He prays for a crippled man who's been crippled from birth. The Bible says the guy gets up and walks, and the people see this, and they said, the gods have come down among us in human form. They run and they get one of their, their false priests to come and they make a wreath and they throw it on Paul. They're ready to have a worship service. But then the Bible says some of Paul's opponents came into town from another town and they begin to cause division among the people. And before the sun set that same day, these people are having a worship service saying, Paul's a god. Barnabas is a god. The same people, the Bible says, dragged Paul out of town and stoned him and left him for dead. That's how quick the opinions of men can change. And here's the application for you and I today. I just have this sense that there are too many sons and daughters of God who have an identity, who have a namesake in heaven, and you've allowed the opinions of other people to define you. You've allowed... the. The judge that sits in the court of public opinion might be a spouse. It might be a parent. It might be coworkers. It might be Facebook and Instagram and, and trying to keep up with what everybody else thinks and what everybody else says about you. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have other people speak into your life. But what I am saying is those people can't define you. They can't define you. There is a world that is watching your storm. They've seen the attack you're under. Now, now, we might look at it and call it a spiritual attack. Maybe you would call it, maybe it's just bad luck. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's just a marital dispute. You, you can call it whatever you want, but here's what the world's doing. They're watching to see if you're going to swell up, fall over, and die. And that's why there is nothing more powerful. There's not, there's not a more credible witness in the earth than when a child of God suffers. Because we do it differently. 
These people watch, well, we know how this goes. I mean, you know, your finances fall apart. Your life falls apart. We know how this goes. I, I, I had a cousin that got diagnosed with the same thing. Not good. People are looking. They go, oh, I, I know how this is going to happen. Or, or maybe you already encouraged them in their storm before, and they're waiting. Okay. Well, I, you know, I went through a tough stuff a month ago, and you said I ought to pray. And God will help me. What are you going to do now? Now that you're the one that's struggling, now that you're the one that's hurting and they're watching and they're waiting. And when we just trust God and when we stand in faith and we refuse to let the opinions of others or even ourselves begin to define who we are. But instead, we begin to walk in faith and believe the promises of God that are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. He is glorified to a level that nothing else can bring him glory. The world is watching to see how the saints will suffer. What's so amazing to me that Paul never let the people of Malta define him. When they said he's a murderer, he didn't get defeated. He didn't get distraught. When they turned around and said, no, he's a Messiah, he he didn't get a big head. He didn't have an ego. He didn't get prideful. Paul didn't let those people define who he was. In fact, he didn't even let the Roman centurion define who he was. Even though the man had put him in shackles and and put him on a ship and told him, you're going to go and stand trial before Caesar. You're going to give an account for these charges. Paul never once, in spite of what it looks like, never once was he a prisoner of Rome. What do you mean? Never, never a prisoner of Rome. I mean, from Paul's vantage point, he was never a prisoner of Rome. Though he never got out of those shackles. We know from other epistles that when he got to Rome, he wrote a letter. He wrote many letters, but one of them was to a dear friend named Philemon. And when he wrote this letter, he's sitting in his house in Rome with shackles on his wrist, tethered to a Roman soldier. And he begins the letter with these words. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Come on, that's awesome. That's perspective. Paul refused to be defined by the circumstances. He said, I'm not not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. At the end of the letter, he, he signs off in verse 23. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends you his greetings. Paul was not going to be limited by what people or what problems wanted to define him as. He understood something. I'm called by God. And I want you to understand today, God has a call and a plan and a purpose for your life as well. You know, I was thinking this week, back on last Sunday, I don't know if you were here last Sunday, but we had the ladies from New Life for Girls here. All these girls that are in a a rehab program to not just rehabilitate their physical and their mental lives, but spiritual lives. They're learning the word of God. They're learning who God says they are. And I was so touched last week as they stood on this platform. And I I thought back to last Sunday. as One of the young ladies from her own church is in that program. She stood right about here as they sang. And for the first time in her life, she sang a solo. And the word she said was, you thought I was to die for. 
You thought I was worth saving. And can I tell you today how powerful that was in that moment? It should be that true and that real for every one of us. No matter what your story is, no matter what your background is, no matter how many times you failed or gotten it wrong, you need to remember, he thought you were to die for. That's what you mean to him. That's what you're worth to him. You got to know who you are. Number two. You got to shake it off. Acts chapter 5, we already read it, but I want to read it again. It says, but Paul shook the snake off into the fire, and he suffered no ill effects. You know, this, this is a fulfillment of the Great Commission. It was in Mark chapter 16. Jesus told the disciples, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every one. And it says these words. It says, these are the signs that are going to follow them that believe. Mark chapter 16, verse 18. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. That's literally what happened in this moment. Paul was bitten by a venomous snake and he just shook it off in the fire. And he went on to do the work that God had for him to do. Why? Because he was committed to the call. Which, On a side note. You ever seen those crazy folks down in Virginia or Tennessee or Kentucky that play with snakes in their worship service? That is not what this means. <laughs> I got a whole another sermon for those folks. That is not what this means. You go and play with a snake and get bit, you will swell up and fall over and you probably will die. But Paul was committed to the call of God on his life. Paul was doing the work of an evangelist. He wasn't playing games. The Bible says he shook off the snake and he suffered no ill effects from it. Now, listen, I don't want to, I don't want to over spiritualize something that's very practical. In fact, we can, we can get into dangerous waters when we read the scripture and we think everything that we read is actually something in, in my life today. Like, you know, you got to be careful that you don't take the scripture out of context. But here's what I know about the word of God. The Bible says it is living and active. It's powerful. And what that means is that you can be reading about a a literal shipwreck. You can be reading about an actual snake bite. And the Holy Spirit can, can let a word come off the page and speak specifically to your life and your situation. And that's, that's God. God can, God can speak to you. So I don't want to risk the text out of its context. But as I was reading this scripture, God began to speak to me about a couple things about the serpent. And I want you to make application with me in this. And let me just begin by saying that, that I think it's pretty common to all of us to know that the serpent in the Bible oftentimes is representative of the devil. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says in chapter 3 verse 1 that the serpent was more crafty than all of the other animals. And we know all the way at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 20, the Bible says that God was going to take the serpent, who is the devil, who had deceived people, and throw him into the lake of fire. So we can understand this analogy of the serpent being the devil that comes to attack us. And and I want to give you just three, three lessons from the snake, three lessons that I see in this text. Number one, he attacks where the work is being done. Here's what you got to remember about the devil. 
He can't create anything. He is not God's equal and opposing force. Too many of us have gotten our theology from cartoons. We think that that an angel sits on this shoulder and that the devil sits over there and they just argue back and forth and sometimes one wins and sometimes the other one wins. The devil is not an equal and opposing force of our God. He is a fallen angel. He is an ex-employee of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He, He can't create anything. He's not omnipresent. He's not all-knowing. So here's what he does. Since he can't create anything himself, he loves to pervert and distort and destroy the things that God created. He wants to do the most damage he can do. And so what he does is he attacks the place where the work is being done. Because the Bible says in Ephesians 2.20 that you and I were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. I'm created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so if the enemy wants to come against something and he can't create anything himself, he's going to come and attack the created plan and purpose that God has for your life. Now, notice what Paul's doing. He's not just sitting on the beach, enjoying the fire, drying out his clothes, just taking in the unusual kindness of the people of Malta. No, that's not the heart of Paul wasn't the heart of Jesus. Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest, become the servant. Become the servant of all. Paul didn't have this privileged ivory tower mentality of his ministry. Oh, I'm touch not the Lord's anointed. I'm, I'm the apostle Paul. Would you carry my Bible for me, please? No. Paul said, oh, wow, great. These guys got a fire. Well, they're going to need some more firewood. I'll go get the wood. I'll go get, I'll help, I'll serve. I'm willing to, to, to do my part. See, the serpent is attracted to the servants. The serpent is attracted to the people that are committed to doing the work. Can I just tell you, some, some Christians don't need the devil's help to wreck their life. They just don't. They are just, they're really, they're good at doing it by themselves. To be quite honest, if you live a self-centered life, you're not even on the radar. The devil's not worried about you. Go ahead. Waste your life pursuing the American dream. You can have the American dream if you're not building the kingdom of God. He's not out to give you a headache or to give you poverty or to ruin your weekend or your family vacation. He wants to destroy the kingdom of God. So there's a lot of people that the devil's not even concerned with. Just go ahead and live your life. Do your thing. But it's the servants that attract the serpent. It's the servants of God who say, I understand that I was created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That God has given me gifts and talents and ability and time and treasure. And I'm going to use those things. I'm going to devote my whole self to doing the thing that God wants done. Jesus said it like this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Jesus was saying, don't, don't be surprised. If you're committed to doing the work of God, don't be surprised when people hate you. Don't be surprised when people come against you. Don't be surprised because when you serve, the serpents come out of the woodwork. The devil is in opposition to the kingdom of God. He cares less about your hobby. He cares about your service in the kingdom of God. And so he attacks where the work is being done. Secondly, let me tell you this that God showed me in this text. The serpent is driven out by the heat. That's what it said. The serpent's driven out by the heat. You know, all through the word of God, fire is representative of the presence of God and of powerful prayer. You can go all through the word of God. You think about Elijah who prayed on Mount Carmel and, and God heard that prayer and fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. And when they built the tabernacle, there was a, a responsibility to always tend the flame on the altar. Why? Because that fire represented the presence of God. Even today, when people hold vigils, we see them doing what? They light candles. Why do they do it? Because those fires are synonymous of their prayers and of the favor and the power of God in their life. There was a time when the disciples were, were trying to cast the demon out of a little boy. In Mark chapter 9. They prayed for the little boy. Said every prayer they knew how to pray. And nothing worked. The kid was still laying on the ground. Seizing. Till finally the Bible says Jesus showed up. And he saw the young men. And he saw the crowd. And he rebuked the devil. He commanded the demons to come out of the little boy. He picked him up and he gave him back to his father. And then later in private, the disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast the demon out? And Jesus said these words. He said, these kind come out only by prayer. In other words, there are some things that you're only going to get the victory over by heating up the fervor of your prayer life. If you've been fighting devils in your home, you need to just go home today and you need to have a Holy Ghost prayer meeting in your house. If you've been dealing with an attack of the enemy, you need to com confront the enemy on the battleground of prayer. If you want to drive the devil out of your circumstance, the devil, the, the serpent is driven out by the heat. I want to challenge you today. Begin to turn up the fervency of your prayer life. Begin to call on God. Begin to believe God like you've never believed before. Serve, yes, work like it depends on you, but pray like you know it depends on God. Amen. Let me tell you the third thing, lesson in the serpent. The serpent always attacks the anointing. He always goes after the thing that God purposed you to do. He goes after your anointing. The devil wants to disrupt the gift of God in your life. How many times have we heard the backstory of some famous secular musician or singer? And then when you hear the backstory, you hear the story is, well, they grew up singing in the church. They learned how to sing in a gospel choir. Or that you, what is that? That's the enemy attacking the anointing of God, the gifting as a vocalist. The gifting, the ability that God gives people. We see the enemy always attacking the anointing. And there's something that God has anointed you to do. Don't be surprised when the enemy comes against that thing. 
See, the Bible says this. The Bible says that the viper bit Paul's hand. Didn't bite him in the foot. Didn't bite him in the leg. Didn't bite him in his side. It bit Paul's hand. The apostle Paul, who wrote over half the New Testament, the viper attacked his hand. The Paul who said in 2 Timothy 1.6, Timothy, stir up the gift of God that was in you at the laying on of my hands. There's something that God had anointed Paul to do through his hands, and that's the place where the enemy attacks. In fact, look with me at the next verse here, Acts 28, verse 7. Look what happens in Malta right after this snake bite. It says in verse 7, there was an estate nearby that belonged to to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us into his home and he showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer, he placed his hands on him and healed him. He placed his hands on him. The hand that just a few verses earlier had a viper latched onto. And he just shook off in the fire. God wanted to do something through the hands of Paul that would absolutely touch an entire island of people. And there's something that God wants to do in your life. And I'm telling you, he will attack the anointing because he fears the potential. See, Jesus said it like this. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. He has anointed me to set the oppressed free. Satan really doesn't care much about your gifting. He wants to attack your anointing. Because if you lose your anointing, the touch of God, you'll prostitute your gift out to the highest giver. That's why when a young teenager with incredible talent gets offered a record label, but we don't want you to sing about Jesus. Okay. Why? They have the gift, not the anointing. The enemy wants to attack the anointing in your life. He wants to take the thing that God created for good works, and he wants to destroy those works. I talked to a dad this week who his adult son was just enrolled in Adult Teen Challenge, which is basically the same program for men as what the New Life for Girls program is for women. And I talked on the phone with that dad this week, and he said, you know, from the time my son was, I mean, a little boy, I mean, I remember taking him into the barber shop when he was a kid. And he just sat on that stool and he talked to that barber like they were old friends. And that barber looked at me and said, your son has got charisma. And he said, you know, I've heard people say that about my son all of his life. And I just know that if he can ever overcome this demon of alcoholism, if he can ever get freedom from that, God is going to use him to do incredible things. And I said, Amen. But you know the thought that crossed my mind is, you know who else knows that about him? The devil. He knows that if, if they ever start walking in their anointing, 
I mean, if they ever start walking in the power of the Spirit, I mean, yeah, they've got some talents, they got some gifts, they got some opportunities, but if they ever get the anointing, it's going to put fear throughout hell. The devil wants to attack the anointing of God on your life. And I want to encourage you today, if there's an area of your life that you just feel like the devil has just sunk his fangs in, I mean, he's just, he's just latched on with his venom. But God intended to bless that. That was something that God wanted for your good. You got to learn today to shake it off. Just the same way that Paul did. You got to learn to shake it off. Just look at the person sitting next to you and tell them, shake it off. You might need to tell them to shake off the sleepy if they were tired. Just wake them up and say, shake it off. Shake it off. Now, you know what? Honestly, that sounds... That sounds a little superficial. I mean, honestly, the thought that goes through my mind when somebody says, hey, shake it off. I have vague memories of of high school football, of laying flat on my back in the grass after getting pummeled. And then a coach leans down over and he says, shake it off. In other words, get up. Don't let it bother you. Throw some dirt on it. Walk it off. Just shake it off, right? And let me just tell you, there's a whole lot more that's happening here than just don't let it bother you. He's not saying don't let it bother you. I want you to look at it one more time. I know we've read the verse twice now, but I want you to see it one more time. Look at what's happening in verse five. It says Paul shook the snake off in the fire. But Paul shook the snake off in the fire. He shook the snake off in the fire. See, we get so fixated on the snake that we miss the activity of what really happened in this moment. It could be written like this, but Paul destroyed the snake and suffered no ill effects. He he didn't just get away from it. You know, I think some Christians, we kind of we live from Sunday to Sunday just hoping we can just get enough of an anti-venom to get through another week. Like, oh, man, the devil's really been after me. Oh, he's just been, he's been wearing me out. I've had such a tough week. But, oh, if I, if I could just get a little respite, if I could just get a little reprieve, if, if I could just get a little bit of that Holy Spirit anti-venom, and then we're going to go back out and stick our hand in the same fire. Well, Paul shook the snake off in the fire and suffered no ill effects. I said earlier that the devil wants to destroy the anointing, but can I tell you today, the reason that Jesus came is to destroy the works of the devil. I want to show you that because that was a really weak amen. I'm going to give you another chance. First John chapter three, verse eight. Look at this verse. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. Isn't it funny how no matter what we preach on, it all comes back to the cross, doesn't it? The reason Jesus came, the reason he suffered, the reason he hung, bled, and died was to destroy the works of the devil so that in the moment that the enemy comes in and latches onto your life, you can shake it off. 
Not to run in fear, not to retreat into some spiritual Christian bubble or cocoon, but to shake it off in the fire, to destroy the works of the devil. That's a part of the finished work of redemption at Calvary. You know, the Bible says it like this in the Psalms. I I love Psalm 127 or 124, verse 7. It It says, he has escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. We used to sing this song, once like a bird from prison bars have flown, and I'll fly away. He's escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. But that's not all the verse. He's done more than that. Come on, he didn't just set us free. It says the snare has been broken. He destroyed the snare. And we have escaped. In other words, that thing that the enemy used to trap me, I'm going to shake it off, but I'm not going to get stuck in that trap again next week. I'm not coming back for round two. Second verse, same as the first. No, 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 I got victory today. When I came to the altar, when I came to Christ, when I came through the veil of the blood of Jesus, the curse of sin was broken off of my life. And I shook that snake off in the fire. Some of you today, that's what you need to do. You need to just quit letting the devil play the same game, the same song and dance, the same charade in your life. It's time to shake it off in the fire. I feel a T-Swift anointing coming on me right now. All these girls in the front row are over here doing the motions. <laughs> shake it off. Come on, tell your neighbor. Say, shake it off. Now, tell your second favorite neighbor. Shake it off. Look at verse 10. Acts 28. They honored us in many ways. Many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. I just want you to think for a minute the impact of Paul's ministry on Malta. Now, this is not where he's been called to go, right? He's going to Rome. God told him. He prayed, I want to go to Rome. He wrote to the Romans, I want to come and visit you. God confirmed it in Acts 23, again, verse 11, that you're going to go stand trial before Caesar. God told him again in Acts 27, you're going to Rome. But look at what God's done in Malta. Paul lays his hands on an elderly man and God heals him. And the Bible says that all the sick people from the community came and all the sick were healed. Can you imagine what kind of revival if you just went down to an island in the Caribbean and started praying for folks and all the sick people? I mean, sometimes we don't think about the magnitude of the miracle. All the sick people are healed. And it's not like everybody just started celebrating and having a parade and then Paul just got back on board another ship and left. No, no, no. No, see, he's wintering here. If you go back through the story, the the whole idea was that they were going to just winter in Phoenix. They wanted to just move to another port city about 40 miles away and stay there. But instead... The sovereign will of God through a northeaster blew them 500 miles across the Mediterranean Sea. So they were shipwrecked. They, they, were, they were soaking wet and they dragged themselves on shore at this place. And God, through the hands of Paul, works an incredible miracle. Many, many miracles. But it's winter and they're on dry ground and it's past the season for sailing. So they have three months now until February that they're not going anywhere. And don't you think after all those miracles, people wanted to know what Paul had to say? Even Jesus said, if you don't believe me for my word, believe me for the miracles. 
Miracles were always a doorway to the gospel for Paul. He didn't want a miracle ministry. He wanted a salvation ministry. And so all these lives are changed. And and, and do you think that any of that would have happened if everything Paul wanted to happen would have happened? Paul wanted to go to Rome. Malta wasn't on the agenda. But God ordered and orchestrated his steps and brought him to that place. I want to encourage you today to know that somebody's salvation may be on the other side of your shipwreck. Somebody may find hope on the other side of your disaster. Don't lose confidence in God. Don't lose confidence in God. Trust God. Yeah, but you don't know what I've been through. Trust God. Believe that, that his, he's good and that his plan is bigger than you making all the right decisions or everything falling in place the way you'd like it to. Man makes his decisions, but God establishes his steps. Look down at verse 16. As we close, it says this, verse 16. We got to read this verse. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Paul gets to Rome. He's a prisoner. He's still in shackles, but he's not put in the general population part of the prison. Once again, God favors him and he's given his own house that he can rent. And he's assigned a soldier to be shackled to him at all times. So here's Paul in Rome. He's allowed to have guests coming and going as often as he wants. In fact, the Bible said he had many people come. I don't know if it was a big house or just a tight party, but many people came. And he preached unhindered. He preached the gospel. Could you you imagine being the guard? Assigned to Paul, it's no wonder that that later he wrote all the the gospel has gone through all of the praetorium guard because these guys are on a rotation of shifts and every day somebody else has to come and latch up next to Paul and listen to this guy preach the gospel for eight hours. When's my shift over? You know, and the gospel is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He wrote in Romans one. And so all of a sudden, these guys start believing what they're hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And their lives start changing. And they start going home and telling their families about it, talking to the other guards about it. Did you hear what that Paul is preaching? Did you hear about this Jesus? And for two years, the Bible says, look at the last two verses, 30 and 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And then it stops. It's kind of funny that the book of Acts doesn't really have an ending. I mean, we've been following Luke, who is carefully, and tediously been documenting for us the, the journey of Paul for for several pages, and then you get to the end, 
And we know that's not the end. We know from the rest of the New Testament that, that Paul went on to write several epistles. Historians tell us that after two years, Paul was exonerated. He was never convicted of these crimes that got him to Rome. They let him go free. Historians tell us that he went up to Spain and he preached there. He traveled to other places before he was finally martyred again in Rome under Nero. But, but Luke doesn't give us any of that. And I think there's a reason for it. I think the reason is because even though we've been focusing on the life of Paul, that was not the focus of Luke's writing. See, he said in Acts chapter one, in the very first verse, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That was the gospel of Luke. But now I'm writing another book and I'm still talking about what Jesus is doing. This is not a book about Peter. It's not a, a book about Paul. This is a book about what Jesus is doing. And the outline for the book is Acts chapter one, verse eight. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when you read the book of Acts, that's the, that's the outline. That's the table of contents. The gospel begins in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It moves to Judea and to Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Rome was a big part of that. Paul getting to Rome was a big part of that, but it wasn't the whole story. And so Luke intentionally leaves it open-ended. He says he got there and he preached with boldness and without hindrance. And the cliffhanger is this. It's our turn now. It's our turn. This gospel is still going forth. It ought to still be being proclaimed with boldness and without hindrance. And so the, the question that begs to be asked of you and me is, is that true in my life? Is the gospel being proclaimed without hindrance? from my lips, from my life. I want to pray for you today. And as I was praying for you this week, the Lord just made it really clear to me that there may be some people here today that are struggling to know the will of God. Maybe, maybe there's a specific decision in your life that you're trying to make. Should I go left? Should I go right? And you're here today and you felt that tension of not knowing, am I supposed to drop an anchor and stay here or, or is the Holy Spirit trying to send me in a different direction? And should I just give way to it and head for the shore? I feel like there's some people here today that are in that exact situation. I just want to speak a word of grace over you today. I want you to know today that God doesn't want you to sit and do nothing. That be still doesn't mean stand still. But here's the word. Don't fear. Don't fear that in your doing, you're going to somehow disqualify yourself from the call of God on your life. Don't allow fear to, to paralyze you. You know, we, we get into that place of paralysis by analysis. Oh, I'm just going to pray about it. I'm just going to pray about it some more. I'm just going to pray about it. I'm just going to pray about it some more. We just think it to death. God, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over your storm. And if your heart 
is committed to his will, he will reveal his way. So if that's you today, I want to pray for you right now. Would you just bow your head with me all over this room? God, I pray for the, for the man or woman that's here today that, that really has just struggled to know what is next. What do I do? Where do I go? God, I pray that as we see the way you sovereignly, providentially orchestrated Paul's journey to not only get him to where he longed to go, but to take him on a more meaningful path. God, I pray in the same way that you would give us that confidence and that assurance that, God, you're doing the same thing in us. And that maybe, maybe there's more glory for Jesus on the other side of our shipwreck. Maybe there's more miracles. Maybe there's more salvations. Maybe there's a greater testimony. Maybe there's a people that you're going to use me to influence and change. If I'll just stay the course and trust you. God, I pray that you would encourage your people today to know that your wisdom is greater than our wisdom. Your ways are higher than our ways. God, you can use our right choices and our wrong choices. So long as our hearts are fully committed to you. So God, we do that right now. We just commit our hearts to you. God, we just commit our, our future and our plans to you. Church, look at me for just a moment. The Bible says this, the steps of the righteous are ordered by God. The Bible also says, Isaiah said, our righteousness is like filthy rags. In other words, you don't actually have any righteousness. (laughs) So what did he mean? The Bible says that God made him who had no sin to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's the exchange that takes place at salvation. It's not that all of a sudden I became good and so now God's going to orchestrate my life. It's not that I'm a better person. Now I'm, I'm, I'm righteous. I'm a self-made man. And so now God's going to establish my steps. No, 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 that's, that's not it. steps of the righteous are ordered by God. The righteous are those who come to Jesus. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you need to run to him today. You need to cling to him today. You don't need to go out of here trying to formulate a better plan for your future. You need to just trust Jesus today. I want to pray for anyone here that might need to make that decision. Father, right now, let your Holy Spirit, who convicts us of sin and unrighteousness, begin to weigh heavy upon our hearts. God, thank you that the work of the Spirit is not a condemning work, that right now your Spirit is not pushing anyone down. If we're being pushed down right now, that's the lies of the enemy, God. We just rebuke that. We shake it off. In Jesus' name. The work of the Spirit is to lift us up. To convict us of sin, yes, but to call us upward in Christ Jesus. And today, God, I pray for those that might be here and feel and sense that call. That's you today. You need Jesus to to save you. To make you righteous. 
begin to order the steps of your life. Right now, I want to invite you to just say out loud, Jesus, I trust you for salvation. We just pray that prayer. Jesus, I trust you for my salvation. Jesus, I trust you for my salvation. God, thank you. That it's that easy. As we'll, if we'll put faith in you, if we'll believe in you, God, our lives can be changed. Our steps will be ordered and established in Christ. So God, I give you thanks today that you are working for our good. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said amen. 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 Can we just give God praise today for the word of God? Amen.